Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. So today we're going to cover the challenging topic of pediatric cancer. Um, I know that this is something that, of course, is many families' worst nightmare, but unfortunately something that we all as medical professionals and families have to deal with. Um, And so today we're going to be giving some background on the types of childhood cancers and their treatments, but more specifically, we want to focus on how we can best support families and children who are going through pediatric cancer. And we're fortunate today that joining us is Jessica Alonzo. She's the executive director for Keaton's Child Cancer Alliance, which is a local Northern California nonprofit whose work is centered around supporting families who have been affected by childhood cancer. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jessica. Can you tell us a little bit more about your organization and about the family that started it? Absolutely, and thank you. It is truly an honor to be here today. Keaton's Child Cancer Alliance is a grassroots pediatric cancer nonprofit based in Roseville, California. We were founded in 1998 in memory of five-year-old Keaton Raphael, who gained his angel wings after a nine-month courageous battle to neuroblastoma. Our mission is to love and support children with cancer and their families through emotional, educational, and financial services while increasing childhood cancer awareness and funding research towards a cure. We partner with pediatric oncology centers throughout Northern California who connect us with newly diagnosed families. Our family navigators, who are trained professional social workers, build rapport and trust with families as they navigate the complexities of a pediatric cancer diagnosis and beyond. It's so overwhelming, complex when families get this diagnosis. And and like I mentioned before, this is many families' worst nightmare. But thankfully, it's relatively uncommon. However, I think most of us may know a family who has been touched by pediatric cancer. I know I've I may have shared on the podcast before that sort of one of the things that led me to medicine was my involvement in this um, pediatric oncology summer camp for kids that had a diagnosis of cancer that was run out of San Diego. I volunteered all through middle and high school and, and even college. I went every summer. And so some of my best friends are pediatric cancer survivors. So it's definitely a, a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. I think we all have that special kid or family that comes to mind when we talk about the topic of of childhood cancer. How common is a cancer diagnosis in childhood? Jessica, can you review some of the statistics for us? Sure. So every year, more than 17,000 children in the U.S. are diagnosed with cancer. And unfortunately, incidence rates are increasing each year. That sums up to about 47 children being diagnosed each day. And also one in 285 will be diagnosed with cancer before the age of 20. So we're looking at infants all the way to teens and adolescents being impacted by this disease. California, alarmingly, is number one in the nation for the highest leukemia incidence rates as well. Cancer remains the leading cause of death by disease in children. These are all alarming statistics and why this is such an important topic. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. And as we go through medical training, you know, I always think like 
I think most of our listeners know what residency is, right? When you're training to become a doctor, you do months on the hematology-oncology rotation. And it's definitely one of the most... Um, it's the hardest because the learning the medicine is challenging, but it's also emotionally draining. But it's so rewarding because you you get to know these families and these kids so, so well. And so, of course, to us, it's something that we see in medicine more than we would like to. So these these stats are not so alarming to me, but something that we need to keep working for a cure for, right? So let's talk about some of the most common types of pediatric cancer. There are many different types, and we could do a podcast really on each of the specific types of cancer and their treatment. So we're going to do kind of a broad overview today. Leukemias are the most common pediatric cancer. They make up about a quarter of pediatric cancers. Leukemias are cancers of the blood and the bone marrow cells. The bone marrow is what makes our infection-fighting cells, our red blood cells, our, our platelets. And so that's where these abnormal cells can start to arise in leukemias. Acute lymphoid leukemia, which many of us know as ALL, makes up about three-quarters of those leukemias. And then there's brain and central nervous system cancers. They make up uh, about another quarter of the cancers. And there are many different types of brain cancer, which can be differentiated by the location within the central nervous system and also the type of cell that they originate from. There are lymphomas, which are more commonly seen in our teenage group, our older kids, and they make up about 20% of cancers in the adolescent age group. Um, this is a cancer that develops from our immune cells in our lymphoid tissue. So you may notice like your lymph nodes that, that can commonly get bigger when you're sick or you have a viral illness. Um, they can also be the origin for some of these cancers. One of the more common names that you may recognize is Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then there's other less common pediatric cancers such as neuroblastoma, nephroblastoma or kidney cancer, rhabdomyosarcoma, bone cancers like osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma, and thyroid cancers. There's cancers of any kind of cell, really. There's more than 12 major types of pediatric cancers and over 100 subtypes of cancers. And the age that cancers are most commonly diagnosed really varies depending on which type of cancer the child is diagnosed with. When we look at all pediatric cancers combined, the average age of diagnosis is about 10 years old. Six years for our younger children, so that would be 0 to 14 would be the average age, and then 17 years for our adolescents or older age group. But again, widely variable based on the type of cancer. There are several known risk factors associated with cancer um, for children. There are some genetic syndromes that put children at increased risk and require screening, things such as Down syndrome or Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. And then there's many environmental exposures that we've talked about on previous podcast episodes that can increase the risk of cancer. Now, most of the time, it's a sporadic occurrence, and we really have no explanation for why a specific kid gets cancer. And we do know for sure that cancer is not caused by anything the parents or the family did wrong. And this is something that parents often try to look for and, and start feeling guilty about, like, what did we do wrong that our kid got cancer? But it's just a random sort of a thing. There are many symptoms. We talked about how different all of these different types of cancers are. So like, 
explaining like, okay, well, what do I need to look out for in my kid or what symptoms do I need to worry about? It's going to be so variable, but we can kind of give some overarching things that at least require like further evaluation by your physician. So if you ever notice an unusual mass or swelling anywhere that hasn't been there before, it's good to get checked out. If the kid is looking really pale for an unexplained reason or they have a, a worsening rash that's not responding to typical treatments, if they seem like that your kid was like the active kid on the playground, they were everywhere, and all of a sudden they're just so low energy, they can't keep up with their peers. If you notice that they have any like unusual movements or behaviors that weren't there before, with the leukemias we talked about, um, because there's an infiltration of the bone marrow, um, the area that makes your normal red blood cells and platelets, sometimes those abnormal cells will take the place of your typical cells that are responsible for clotting and doing other things. So, so you may notice that your kid's getting bruises all over that they didn't have before, or they're bleeding easier. They're getting, you know, really frequent nosebleeds. If a kid has lasting pain in any part of their body, you know, kids, they, they're pretty resilient and, and they, they shouldn't really have per chronic pain like, you know, we do as adults, you know, my back hurting every morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that is not normal in kids. So if your kid has pain in, in one specific area, it's definitely worth getting that checked out. Unexplained fevers, frequent headaches, especially if it's associated with something like vomiting, vision changes or eye movement changes or any unexpected rapid weight loss. Those, of course, are all reasons to go in. It does not mean that your kid is going to get a cancer diagnosis by any means. The vast majority of these kids will not have cancer, but it definitely warrants further evaluation. Yeah, and that last one you mentioned just reminds me that one of the things that's different about kids, pediatrics, compared to adults, is kids are growing and they're gaining weight. And so if a kid doesn't gain weight and actually starts losing weight, that's really abnormal, whatever the cause is. And one of the causes could be a, a cancer or malignancy, but, but that's always a, a red flag for some kind of a problem. Right. If you have any concerns, then it's always appropriate to reach out and discuss them with your child's doctor. Um, And then if your doctor has concerns, they may want to do further testing. And some initial screening tests might be blood tests, could be x-rays or more advanced imaging like CT scans or MRIs of specific areas. And when a cancer is strongly suspected or if it's confirmed, then you will be referred to a doctor specializing in childhood cancer. We refer to these doctors as pediatric oncologists, and they work with the family, with other cancer subspecialists to put together a unique treatment plan for the child based on their specific type of cancer. At Sometimes this is going to require a brief hospitalization, stay overnight in the hospital while you get the treatment plan going. Um, if there's a surgery required, but other times it may be able to be done just with frequent clinic visits. So getting a new diagnosis can be really overwhelming, understandably. And Jessica, since you work so closely with these families, what are some normal responses that you've seen from families in this position? Yes, I'd like to invite everyone to just imagine for a moment hearing the words, your child has cancer. These four words evoke a multitude of emotions for parents, including denial, fear, guilt, anxiety, depression, and just overall difficulty coping with such devastating, life-changing news. Families are often in shock, 
while asking themselves perhaps the most difficult question, will my child survive? As a parent, your greatest purpose is to love and protect your children at all costs. And cancer changes everything. A family's life is turned upside down as they begin to fight to save their child's life. As you shared, it's overwhelming, exhausting, and heart-wrenching as families enter the world of childhood cancer, which so much uncertainty of what lies ahead. And yet, they are resilient and will fight till the very end with a sense and will to never, ever give up on their child's life. Absolutely. These families are so, so amazing, resilient, determined. But the typical treatment, like you mentioned, is really variable and the timeline is variable. How long will my kid be in treatment? What do I need to expect? What do I need to prepare for? It's so variable for each kid. Um, Because each cancer is so different, each requires a unique treatment approach. So a child's treatment plan may or may not include surgery to remove cancerous tissue. It might involve chemotherapy, which I think a lot of people are are sort of aware of, which is IV um, drug therapy, but can also be oral drug therapy. It may involve radiation, which are high-energy x-rays targeted at that area of cancer. There are also new targeted therapies like immunotherapy, the specific proteins that cause the immune system to kill the cancer or target the specific cancer. And there's also stem cell transplants, um, which is like basically wiping out the entire bone marrow and immune system of the kid and replacing it with healthy, different cells. So these are just a few of the treatment options. And depending on the cancer, the, the road will be different for your kid. Yeah. So for each cancer, the treatment is optimized for the greatest chance of survival. And the survival rates for pediatric cancers, they're really different for each type of cancer because some treatments are more or less really aggressive and some cancers um, may have a higher risk of returning. But overall, the rate of pediatric cancer survival has really increased over the past several decades. It's now approaching up to 90% for many of the most common cancer types. And hopefully that number will just continue to rise and rise with all of the amazing research and other things that are being done at our organization as well as across the country. Can you tell us a little bit, Jessica, about what families, including parents, the child's siblings, and then the the kid, the patient themselves deal with during this process? And how do organizations like yours, like Keaton's Cancer Alliance, work to support these families? So childhood cancer truly is a family diagnosis, and every family's journey is truly unique. Cancer does not discriminate based on socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, whether you're a baby or a teen. All families experience a variety of dramatic changes to their everyday lives that they could have never planned for. Financial hardship is experienced due to loss of income with one or both parents no longer able to work to remain at bedside. And now they're incurring new medical bills, medication costs, increased gas, food, and lodging expenses. Social, emotional, and behavioral concerns arise for the patient who at such a young age is now fighting for their life, experiencing physical changes like hair loss, weight fluctuations, mouth sores, and other ailments as side effects of their treatment. They are no longer able to attend in-person school, having to be isolated from friends and loved ones, and spending their days hospitalized or in clinic visits. 
siblings oftentimes experience anger and resentment while not fully understanding why so much attention is given to their sick sibling. They are juggled amongst parents, grandparents, or extended family and friends while trying to understand why their brother and sister is now sick. Parents feel guilty from the moment of diagnosis, asking themselves, why? Why my child? Because they cannot take this cancer away or they can't make their child feel better and can no longer be present with their other children like they used to. Hospitalizations and clinic visits become the new routine for these families while trying to maintain a stable home environment, a stable marriage, while taking care of one's own well-being. In some cases, there are single parents and guardians or even grandparents that are navigating their child's care with little to no resources or support. And now parents are responsible for adhering to their child's treatment while learning about medical procedures, different protocols, cleaning ports, and administering medications. I think you just summarized it so beautifully. Just so our listeners know, the port is a medical device that these kids will get. uh, Most kids um, that are undergoing treatment will get implanted underneath the skin so that we can easier directly access veins for administering medications, frequent blood draws. If they need things like blood products, it's easier and less traumatic for the kid. But exactly, it's it's a whole new world, right? Correct. It's a whole new world of medical lingo and medical terminology, treatments and protocols, and parents are truly at the mercy of these amazing medical professionals and social workers, child life specialists that are all coming alongside them from the medical systems to help navigate these new steps as a parent and caregiver. I'd love to share a little bit about how Keaton's helps to alleviate some of these stressors that families experience. So we have developed a unique family navigator program that provides love, compassion, and support to these families, beginning with the initial assessment of each family's unique needs. As I shared earlier, we partner with local pediatric oncology centers whose social workers will refer families directly to our program. From the moment of referral, our family navigators, our own social workers, are able to assess each family's unique needs and begin to provide vital services that help to mitigate the effects of childhood cancer from a trauma-informed approach that really focuses on the emotional, financial, and educational impacts of the diagnosis, as I shared earlier. Our family-centered programs offer family connections through social worker that helps to navigate throughout the journey. Travel solutions, which include gas and lodging solutions for these families that are commuting oftentimes two to three hours or more to receive their child's treatment. Nutritional aid support, making sure that families have healthy food and meals and groceries available to them. Joy-filled experiences, being able to sprinkle joy and happiness during what many experience, of course, a very devastating time of their lives and allowing families to create these special memories together. And also educational support for youth and families, being able to really come along youth and help them prepare for a life beyond cancer and really continuing to dream about their future steps. Our ultimate goal is to alleviate as many of these stressors as possible for families so that they can focus on what is most important, the care and recovery of their child and the overall well-being of their family. 
We aim to sprinkle joy, happiness, to provide hope and strength to these families while reminding them that they are not alone in this journey, that there's an organization and a community that is truly coming alongside them to fight this journey together. For non-medical professionals, for people who know somebody who has a family that has a childhood cancer, for friends, for relatives, for neighbors, how how can people support um, others in their lives who may be going through this? So if you know someone that finds themselves on this heartbreaking journey, what truly matters most during this time is love. Being able to remind this family and these individuals that they are not alone in this fight. And there's a couple different ways of expressing that love or showing that love to these individuals on an emotional level. It begins with showing compassion, empathy, uh, reminding them that you are there for them, that this isn't a sprint, it's truly a marathon, and that you are with them through the journey that for many families can last just treatment two to three years on average, but that this is a lifelong journey that the family is experiencing, and that, again, you are here for the long haul. Sometimes when you may not have the right words to say and not know how to respond to a statement or something that's shared from a family, just even a silent hug or letting them know that you are here, that you are listening to what they have to say, um, while never assuming that you understand or stating that you understand what the family is going through. At times, uh, a call or a text message, just to even share that they are in your thoughts and prayers with no expectation of receiving a timely response. Our families are focusing on their child and treatment, but when they know and can see that you reached out, it means so much and truly makes a difference. Again, reminds the family that they're not alone in this journey. Just listen. Parents are oftentimes bottling emotions and feelings, trying to remain strong for their child. And again, a simple response with, I'm here, truly goes a long way. There are actual actions of love that someone can provide. Providing and offering a specific form of assistance versus offering a more general question, what can I do for you? Many times parents do not know what they need in a given moment or what they may need later on. So offer a specific form of assistance like Asking to take siblings out on a given weekend for activities and and distraction, positive distraction, where the family can now feel comforted knowing that their other children are well taken care of and having fun outings or sleepovers as well. Even supporting these siblings with school drop-offs, pickups while parents are at the hospital are so, so helpful. Being able to offer meals and groceries or even mowing a family's lawn, offering to clean their home or offer cleaning services before their child returns home. Those are huge needs that a family, again, is not thinking or considering, but that makes a big difference. The financial aspect, as we shared, and the hardship experience is is truly significant. And so being able to provide gas and grocery cards for families really helped to alleviate this financial strain with all of the new treatment-related expenses. And oftentimes, communities, schools, churches can all get together and involved to host fundraisers for families, which is a huge support, helps raise awareness, and again, really helps alleviate these financial stressors for families. After a child completes treatment, and I'm glad that you put a time frame there because I think some listeners may think that this is a 
quick, you know, one surgery or one thing, but this is years. This is, you know, like you said, is that you said the average was about three, two to three years for treatment. This is the long haul. But after treatment is completed, does the journey end? And and how does this history of pediatric cancer influence the physical health, the mental health later in life? Yeah, so from the moment of diagnosis, families really begin to identify with a new normal because, in essence, they will never fully return to their same life prior to cancer. Once the treatment is finished, the healthcare team will set up follow-up schedules and survivorship clinics. But for many years after treatment, it is very important that the children still have regular scans and exams um, because there are still many late effects and, and side effects of the treatments that they have received from a young age. There's also the opportunity for relapses and reoccurrences of cancer. So this really takes a full team to come alongside the family uh, beyond even treatment uh, finishing. Over 99% of childhood cancer survivors have a chronic health problem just because of the toxic treatments that they've been receiving as children, the chemotherapy, radiation, and that's something that, again, really leads to these late effects that uh, we'll be hearing here shortly. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that because some of these possible late effects of cancer treatment include heart or lung problems. This can be due to certain chemotherapeutic drugs or radiation therapy to the chest. Sometimes there's slowed or delayed growth and development in the bones or just overall growth. And then there could be changes in sexual development and the ability to have children um, sometimes children have learning problems, and then there's an increased risk of other cancers later in life that might require additional screening. Right. And those are just the physical side effects, right? Understandably, kids are going to have several social emotional effects of their cancer treatment. These may include dealing with some of those physical changes, you know, hair loss. How are my friends going to perceive me during this time? They may have anxiety about the cancer recurring or a new health problem developing. Um, they may have feelings of resentment for having to go through this and go through treatment when other kids their age don't. I mean, very understandable emotional feelings. And they may have concerns about being treated differently or discriminated against by their peers, concerns about dating, getting married, having a family later in life. And so all of these things are absolutely to be expected, and that's why we really encourage like a whole wraparound, right? Like Keaton's um, Childhood Cancer Alliance is one of these things. A child life therapist while you're in the hospital. These are all things that, that families should look to for support. If a family does endure a heartbreaking loss of their child to pediatric cancer, which was the case with Keaton's family, you know, what can we do to really help support these families and to ensure that their child's legacy lives on? So the loss of a child and a sibling are undeniably one of the most traumatic experiences in a person's life. Parents are left coping with a significant loss that does not get easier with time. It simply looks and feels different throughout various stages of life. One of the greatest fears of bereaved families is that their child will be forgotten. We encourage speaking about the child in present tense and continuing to say their name as family and friends and loved ones allow the safe space for parents and siblings to cope, knowing that everyone copes very differently with loss and grief. 
But again, letting them know that you are here for them, even during such a devastating time of loss. Our bereavement program at Keaton's Child Cancer Alliance offers the opportunity for parents and siblings to connect with others who have also experienced a childhood cancer loss. They share memories, interests, and opportunities, again, to remember that child, to keep their legacy alive, and to be able to connect with others who unfortunately understand what they are going through and that they could be of support to one another. So this peer-to-peer support during a time of loss is, is truly vital. As an organization, we always want to ensure that these children are remembered and that these families are able to seek additional support, such as counseling and mental health support, knowing that for many of the siblings um, and parents themselves, they are not taking the time to really process and cope with the loss. And so a lot of these uh, traumatic effects are now taken with them into adulthood and into other seasons of their life. And so these are elements that we come together to provide support for with our families. And we just want them to know that we are a constant during this journey um, from moment of diagnosis through treatment and that we're invested in, in this journey with them regardless of the outcome, that their child has a special place in our hearts and their family continues to have a special place in our hearts as well. Absolutely. And I know we here in Northern California feel so lucky to have had you guys, um, Keaton's Childhood Cancer Alliance, for the last 25 years, right? We're celebrating the 25th anniversary this year and are so thankful and look forward to all of the amazing work that you guys will continue to do with families in our community. And we will put lots of resources on our blog for people who are not in our region so that they can find a similar organization near them. And there's lots of these wraparound programs for families throughout the country, thankfully. Jessica, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your experience and all of the amazing work that you guys do. Let's summarize some of the main points from our discussion today. Although childhood cancers are rare, one in 300 children are diagnosed with cancer, and it's the leading cause of death by disease in children. The most common cancers in children include leukemia, brain cancers, lymphomas, kidney, and bone cancers. Some genetic syndromes and also environmental exposures may increase the risk of developing cancer. Cancer may be suspected if a child develops an unusual mass or swelling, unexplained paleness or weight loss, sudden tendency to bruise or bleed easily, unexplained fevers or other signs or symptoms. So it's important to check in with your doctor if any of these are developing. And if cancer is suspected, then certain tests may be performed or a referral may be made directly to a pediatric oncologist. Of course, a diagnosis of cancer is devastating and overwhelming to the whole family. Treatment plans and courses vary by type of cancer and may involve surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, immunotherapy, or bone marrow transplantation. The great news is that cancer survival rates are continuing to increase and are approaching 90% for many of the most common types of pediatric cancer. Organizations such as Keaton's Child Cancer Alliance can help families by providing navigator programs to mitigate families' needs during cancer treatments, including emotional, financial, and educational support. And for all of us, if we know a family that's been affected by childhood cancer or really any cancer, you can support them emotionally with specific actions of love, financial support, um, and just being a good listening 
ear for these families. We thank Jessica Alonzo, the executive director for Keaton's Child Cancer Alliance, for joining us for this episode. Although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. Dr. Lena, tell me how you got involved with the camp when you were a teenager. I knew that I was semi-interested in medicine, and I always loved pediatrics. I was always, you know, babysitting and and loved being involved with kids. And I was totally a summer camp kid, too. Like, I loved going to sleepaway camp and all of that. And so I had a family friend who volunteered for this organization. And so I signed up one year and getting to see, I think this is one thing that that Jessica had mentioned, was just like how these kids, they don't get that normal pediatric experience. For many years of their life, they are stuck in a hospital room. And so seeing these kids get to just like be themselves with other kids who have gone through something. So not trying to hide their their port scars, not caring if they were bald, not caring that they're they needed to take their wheelchairs around or or ask for us to like push them up these like, you know, on hikes, these crazy, like difficult trails. It was so amazing to see. And every year, no matter what I was going through, when I did that week, I just left feeling refreshed feeling grateful for everything that I have in my life. Um, And so I always recommend it actually to my patients who are cancer survivors is to get involved in something like that, especially like my teenagers who have gone through something that just makes them feel a little different, whether it is something like diabetes or cancer. Like you should volunteer at one of these summer camps. It's it is truly amazing. And and another resource I'll try to include, I'll I'll provide the link for some of these summer camps too. Of course, your kid has to be in a certain phase of their treatment because occasionally there are, you know, infection risks or other things like that that these kids need to be really careful about. But it's another great resource and um, something that I would definitely recommend. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Lena. And it actually um, made me want to share about one of our newest programs, which is actually our Keaton's Teen Alliance. And so this is a group by teens for teens. And so as you mentioned, uh, pediatric cancer survivors really finding that purpose um, and the meaningfulness of this traumatic experience is now being able to support others who are going through this journey. And so we have teen ambassadors who are the true leadership of this group. And now they're coming alongside younger teens and normalizing the experiences that they have gone through or are going through. And it also provides that hope for them and empowerment that they too will get through this experience. And so many of them now, you know, are 17, 18 years old and have just begun college and going on to the next phases of their lives. And it's really helping to empower the the younger teens as well and and provide that peer-to-peer support from a true level of understanding. We've seen great, great rapport building and trust and just how um, we're looking forward to this program continuing to grow. Yeah, and for parents of kids who don't have any of these issues, um, it's also a great opportunity for them to learn about them and be supportive and get um, you know the satisfaction that you've gotten, the insight satisfaction that you've gotten out of volunteering. And as you mentioned, you know there's there's cancer camps, but there's also asthma and diabetes and HIV, and each of these chronic illnesses has their specific challenges that 
getting together at these camps can really help kids really normalize their um, the challenges that they do have. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. Children's Hospital.